Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. Right. Good evening, everyone. Hebrews chapter 9. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up. Go there. If you're new tonight, my name is Dustin. I'm on staff here at Campus Collective. It's really good to meet you from the stage, but I'm hoping to get to talk to you guys more tonight. Um, I want to reiterate something Andrew mentioned on the Huntington Kids Camp interest meeting. Um, if you've got time this summer and you want to kind of start that movement of seeing Huntington as home, uh, this is one really good way to do that, serve the kids of our city. And so I want to remind you, that, that meeting will take 15 minutes. Just at least come get the info, and um, you can consider that for your, your mission this summer. Um, title of the sermon tonight is Eagerly Waiting. Eagerly Waiting. And as we walk into the next chapter of Hebrews, the author is going to, once again, continue to show us how the Old Covenant The Old Testament was set up to show us the beauty of Jesus Christ, his work on the cross and resurrection, and his kingdom. And I know it's it's easy for that to get repetitive, right? It's like how many times can we hear about the high priest going on? I will tell you, we do a slight shift from the high priest to some architecture uh, tonight. That's going to be fun. Um, But uh, Hebrews 10 takes a decisive turn into the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. And there we start to really see some gospel beauty that we'll get to celebrate together. Um, It's still here tonight, but I want to prepare you. We are going to be reading about holy furniture tonight. So, either way, meant to show us and foreshadow the work of Jesus. So, eagerly waiting. That's the idea. The end of this chapter ends with a pivot into how Christ fulfills the shadows that we're about to look at in the Old Covenant. And then the application for us is it shows us the gospel posture that we must have as believers, that we are men and women in Christ who eagerly wait for Christ to return. Now, it's interesting. I think sometimes it's easy for us to forget that fact or not live in light of it, that the gospel is that Jesus died and rose again, but he also ascended to the Father, and he's also returning. And so the second coming, you'll hear that kind of phrase used of Jesus, is a gospel truth that we must affirm, and it should affect the way that we live even in this life. So the gospel posture, we're going to be people who eagerly wait. Now, I love the Bible for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that it gives us these complex ideas that only make sense in the gospel. I love that we should long for and hope that Jesus will return, but the gospel makes it possible that we can have patient urgency. You get that? Like, we don't know when Jesus will return. We know that he will. We long for that to happen, but in the meantime, we aren't crazed people acting hastily. We are people who are eagerly waiting to be rescued by our king, marked by patience. And so in order to get us to that point, that's where we're going to land. I want all of us to leave here resolved to be people who are eagerly waiting for Christ to return. We need to see more beauty of the Old Covenant. So to start out, it's kind of where we're going tonight. I'm going to give you the last verse of Hebrews 8 as a launching point. 
Then I'm going to go ahead and read those last four verses of Hebrews 9 to show you that eagerly waiting goal, and then we will walk through the whole chapter to get us to that point. So, once again, it is okay if this stretches you. One thing that I hope you take away from the series in Hebrews is that we need to know our Old Testaments better, right? I mean, that, hopefully all of y'all are there. You're like, man, how do they get there from that? Um, and I think tonight is one of those kind of funny um, examples of that. You're like, they read these five chapters in Exodus of describing how to build the tabernacle, and they read that, and they're just like, there's the gospel. And so it's going to teach us how to see that tonight. And so God in his wisdom gives us this story in the Old Testament to set us up to see the beauty of Jesus. So Hebrews 8.13 should be on the screen behind me. This is where we ended last week. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now you remember this. In Hebrews 8, it showed us a prophecy from Jeremiah the prophet where he is prophesying that a new covenant was coming. You guys remember this? And then we saw that that was connected to Jesus' death and resurrection. At the Last Supper, before Jesus goes to the cross, he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, saying what was prophesied, what was being longed for, that was coming in Christ. So this was purchased by Jesus' blood and applied to all who would repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. So once again, remember, the old covenant, so the law, the stories, the tabernacle, the festivals, the feast, etc., are all a shadow that finds its substance in Christ. He's the fulfillment of the old covenant that brings the new covenant for all of us who are in him by faith. And so as we're looking at this, we're looking for glimpses of that glory that we see in full in Christ. So, verse 24, go ahead and flip over that to that. We should have it up on the screen as well. Hebrews 9, there it is. So this is where this is all going to land tonight. It says, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, so important for us, this is true of us, it's appointed for all of you to die. And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so in this little section, what we see already is these ideas of the tabernacle, of these uh, holy places and separated by curtains that we're going to see in Hebrews 9, is showing us a tabernacle-shaped gospel, that Christ entered into the holy place himself to offer himself as the sacrifice, to end all sacrifices, and he's coming again to get all of us who have trusted in that sacrifice. My goodness, we leave here believing that it changes everything for you. We should be eagerly waiting for that day. So let's walk through it. Verse 1. Hopefully you're there. If you don't have a Bible, like I said, it should be behind me. Here we go. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So let's stop there. So that first covenant, also we could call the old covenant, all right? 
the first or old covenant had regulations for worship. Part of this included the high priest's knowledge that we have been thinking through already in Hebrews. Remember the old covenant was still, so important you understand this in reading your Bibles, was still predicated on God's saving work. Remember, he rescues them from Egypt and then gives them the law. He didn't drop into Egypt, give them the law, and say, obey this perfectly, and if you do, then I'll save you. So key. He's rescued, and he says, here's my law of what it looks like to live as people who are free and live as people who can worship me with their lives. It wasn't a works-based religion to earn their rescue. But he wanted to be worshipped properly in his holiness, and in that wanted to show them, and subsequently us, even in the 21st century, how a holy God would dwell among and with sinful, unholy people. So a lot of the old covenant is designed to remind you over and over again, unless God does something, we get eviscerated in the presence of a holy God. We're that sinful. He is that holy. And so that's meant to set up a tension of, yeah, but God wants to be with us. Yeah, but we're sinful and he can't, but he still loves us. That's the tension that drives us straight to the cross of Jesus Christ. And so in this first verse, there's two things being highlighted. The first one, regulations for worship. So sacrifices, offerings, cleansing. And number two, the earthly place of holiness. So in Hebrews 9, we're going to see that as the tabernacle, which was a portable version of what would eventually be the temple, permanent place of God's dwelling in the old covenant times. And so the point here is that he's saying even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. So we have to ask, what are the new covenant, this side of the death and resurrection, realities that we need to keep in mind in light of this fact? This points us to our sacrifices of worship, prayer, and service to our neighbors. All throughout Paul's letters, in a few places at least explicitly, he connects his worship to God and his loving service to people as an expression of sacrifice, even going as far to say that his life is a living sacrifice. And so we're still sacrificing as believers, just not for the salvation of our, of our, from our sins. Jesus did that but are still our sacrifices of praise and love and service in this life. And now, the holy place, no longer a tabernacle, but it's our bodies. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit has taken residence in you, individually, but also in the church. Now, just so we're not mistaken, you are not in the church right now. This building is not a church. Biblically speaking, a church is the people of God. Now, this is really important. First Peter would use the idea of being built up as a holy temple, connects it directly to the people of God being that holy temple or what the temple and tabernacle foreshadowed to show what Jesus was going to do in the church. And so I, I beat this drum every chance I can, and I've got another chance here. If you're a Christian, you're someone who follows Christ, you need to belong to a church family. It makes no sense to be an individual brick laying around and not in a local community of faith, guided by biblical leadership, held to the standard with um, accountability and church discipline, on mission together and focused. And so for some of you, that's just the next step this year. If you're a Christian and you know, hopefully you've seen that throughout this, that we're not trying to just do campus ministry, we're trying to be an arm of the local church to show you the importance of this, that is what God is doing when he's building his temple in the new covenant. So after this, the regulations, then in verses 2 through 5, I mentioned this already, but we get some holy architecture 
explanations that show us more glories of God. These ideas are originally played out in Exodus 25 through 27, chapter 30, and chapter 35 through 38. Um, I'm going to bless you tonight and not read all of that, all right? I'm not going to read, let me see, one, two, three, four, seven chapters of Exodus, um, but I encourage you, um, if you started a Bible reading plan this year, you'll probably get there in, by Valentine's Day, so that'll be romantic. Um, verse 2, here, here's what it says. So even this had regulations, then verse 2, this is key. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. And so what we see right off the bat is the understanding that the tabernacle, or the tent, was prepared with two sections. Now remember, once again, this is the specific period in time where God was showing his people a shadow of what was to come in Christ. But we have a first section called the holy place, and we have a lampstand, and we have a table with the bread of presence. And when you start to look at resources into this and seeing what these pieces of furniture in the tabernacle would represent, you already start seeing gospel seeds start to sprout. Let me explain a few of these to you. So the lampstand. God gives light to sinners. They would have understood that they were in darkness and needed light. They needed the moral clarity that came from outside of themselves, not by looking internally for what is right and wrong. It's not different today. Our culture will try to trick us into thinking that morality is found by looking inward. What feels right, what does you know, the cultural majority say is right, but the biblical reality is that we need moral standards outside of ourselves. You need light, and if you're not in Christ, you're in darkness, and the sad reality is sometimes, not sometimes, all the time, people who we know that don't know Jesus are in the darkness, don't know they're in the darkness, and love the darkness, and so God, in his dwelling with unholy people, says, giving light to sinners. The next thing we see is the table with the bread of presence. This would have shown them that God fellowships with sinners. They would understand that God had come to them. They would understand that fellowship with God satisfies like bread. And all of this in the context of the holy place, the untouchable beauty of God's moral purity. So already, not only am I a light to your darkness, I am bread for your starving souls. Verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. <laughs> Don't you love that? It's like, too much. You know, we'll explain it in heaven. Um, but what we see already behind a curtain, so you start to be thinking, so there's, there's holy place, and then there's a section in this tabernacle called the most holy place, separated by a curtain, showing separation, saying, listen, people of God, old covenant people of God, you need to understand, you are unholy, and God is holy. The most holy place, sometimes called the holy of holies, what we see there is there's a golden altar of incense. This was right outside the curtain of the holy of holies. And then we have the Ark of the Covenant. Throughout reading your Old Testament, you'll see this Ark of the Covenant um, have a major role in the history of the Israelites. But right in there, this section shows us that the Ark of the Covenant, with that, had the golden urn with manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and tablets of the covenant. Now, 
If you go back and read those passages in Exodus, you'll see that normally what is understood is that in the Ark of the Covenant, there was just the tablets. And so you don't have to get thrown off here. Um, it's not that unlikely that they could have been stored also um, in, the, in the Ark of the Covenant when they were moving the tabernacle somewhere else. But the idea is that those three things were associated with the Holy of Holies. And then another, another um, detail here the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now, if you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity, you need to understand cherubim is a type of angel. And I think sometimes in our modern culture, we have domesticated angels pretty significantly. Um, if you're thinking right now, this epic, grand picture of the old covenant reality that God is going to dwell with man, and you think of the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies and cherubim overshadowing it, if you're not careful, you may think, Little babies in diapers and like little wings, like overshadowing the mercy seat, right? It's so easy for us to think this is what angels are like. The reality is when you read sections of the Bible that describe these angels, absolutely terrifying. People see them and fall and are terrified of these heavenly creatures. And so it's not like, I mean, if these cherubim are overshadowing the mercy seat and they're just little babies, you know, chubby babies in diapers with like wings that are too small that are somehow holding their body weight with a harp usually, um, it would be like, that doesn't seem that important, right? Like if we're, like for our security team tonight, we didn't put like my kids out there, right? It's like, Dugan Jack, you got this, guys. Like, guard it. No, these were creatures that would terrify you, showing once again, the glory and the power of this holy of holies. And I love this. It just says at the end of verse 5, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So it's like, okay, you just need to know that, that they were there, and you're not getting any more. And so that's hilarious to me. But even in this, these details, we can see more gospel seeds um, in the most holy place as well. Let me tell you a few. The separating curtain, what would that remind them of? God is separate from sinners. Holy. People, you can't come in here. God is perfect. The golden altar of incense, they would have associated this with prayer. And so at the same time, you're setting up this tension of God is separate. You cannot be in his presence, but also he hears your prayers. They would have understood the mercy of God listening to them. And then the Ark of the Covenant this would have shown them that God reigns over sinners. The covenant tablet showing the moral law of what God expects from his people. The manna reminding them that he not only reigns over them, but provides for them. Uh, the story in the Old Testament with the manna is God literally rains it from the sky so they can eat. And then the staff reminding them of his rightful rule. And then all in all, the entire tabernacle screaming to them that even though you are unholy, God is willing to live with his people. The entire system predicated to remind them, and once again, subsequently us, that unless God does something, we have no shot of being in his presence. Um, I hope, and this is an important thing that I think gets lost in modern culture, but this is one reason that when we gather on Tuesday nights, the, the point is not to be glib and entertaining. We're dealing with a God that is holy, that Apart from his grace and mercy, if he would unveil his glory just in part, we're doomed. 
He's that untouchable. He's that transcendent. He's that above us. And so we worship, yes, it's joy, but it is a serious, focused, reverential joy of this holy God. And these pictures meant to remind them over and over again. He is holy, you are not. He is holy, you are not. But he's dwelling with you, but be careful, because he is holy and you are not. Verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, okay? Remember, divide in two sections by curtain, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And so in these two verses, what we see is how the priests that we've been talking about in Hebrews connect to this tabernacle of holiness and worship. So the regular priests, not the high priests, the regular ones, would go into that first section, the holy place, and they would do their regular priestly duties. But the high priests only come one time, once a year. They would have to sacrifice, there would have to be blood shed, not only for their sins, but even for the unintentional sins of the people. It's an important note for us, guys. It's not sin just because you feel bad about it. It's sin if God says it is. And it's sin even if you didn't mean to. There's unintentional sins in the economy of how God works. It shows us that's how sinful we really are. We sin on purpose. We sin without trying. We need reminded of these things. And so that's what we see right now. That's the old covenant picture. We have this tabernacle that are shadows and types of Christ. We have the priests and their functions in it. And the shadows and copies even in the priest's work, show us the heavenly realities in Christ. And then the passage takes a turn to start to interpret these things for us, thankfully. Look at verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now, it's a lot to think through, but I want to separate it into a few concepts and truth statements so that we can make sense of this. So the Holy Spirit, in his inspiration of the word that showed us how God wanted his old covenant people to worship him, was showing us a truth that is even relevant today. Was saying... God's intimate presence with his people was not yet opened. They needed to understand that. Guys, this, even embedded in this, when you study this out with commentaries, you see that even as they're worshiping, they would have understood something still hasn't been done for us to get with God. Like Because the first section was still standing, they realized all of us aren't allowed in there. They were longing for the, for the one that would come and open that way for them. And so in Christ, the Holy of Holies has been opened. His holy presence, we are able to be in his presence because of Christ. Also showing the old covenant age has ended. Now here's where this gets interesting. And I don't want to labor you with a bunch of technicalities, but it is an interesting thought whenever you study this out more. Um, Commentaries sometimes go back and forth on what exactly this means. Some people see that, which is symbolic for the present age, meaning the old covenant time that has ended by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Other people, when you read this, would see this and think, 
He's talking about our present age. So like, meaning the time that we're in right now. Regardless of where you land, it's still important to understand this. Jesus did end the old covenant times, right? We come to God through the person and work of Jesus. But also, it is true that we are in an overlap of ages right now. Even in our present age that we live in, God is separate from people, and it's evidenced by people rejecting Christ and loving their sin. And so we're still not in a time when every person is fully worshiping God, free from the presence of sin. But the way to God is open because Jesus has died and has risen again. And in his resurrection, he unleashed this, as Hebrews would call it in verse 10, the time of reformation or the new covenant age. Now, I know that's a lot of technicality, but here's the main point. One day, the present age that we are in, just like the old covenant age ended when Jesus came and lived and died and rose again, this present age will also vanish and all sin will be gone one day. The full and final fulfillment of Jesus' new covenant will be brought in its totality. In the old covenant and in today's time with people who aren't in Christ, people are still longing for God's holiness to not be against them but instead be for them. And what we see in the old covenant in, in verses 8 through 10 is all they could do was regulate their body, and they couldn't have the intimate presence of God internalized. And so I want to stop here to make sure you're not missing the application and leaving this as just an Old Testament theology lesson. You need to feel the weight of your separation from God. Even though the Old Covenant age is over, we are still in an age of people earning their way to God. Maybe that's even you tonight. People are convinced that their self-improvement projects can lead them to eternal happiness. People think that their religious rituals can satisfy a holy God. How many times have you engaged with someone in a spiritual conversation on campus, and you ask them if they're a Christian, they say yes, and you say something like, how do you know? And it's something akin to, well, my uncle was a pastor. We shouldn't scoff at that. That is terrifying. They're thinking because they're associated with religious things that a holy God is pleased with them. Maybe that's some of you tonight. Maybe you've determined that Tuesday night attendance and cleaning yourself up morally is what would satisfy a holy God. Just like the men and women in the old covenant who didn't have true faith in God, there are people who attach themselves now to whatever religious system they can they think will make God happy. And the point for you tonight, if that's you, is to understand that the point of the Old Covenant and the point of God's law now is to remind you, not remind you, to urge you to understand that you can't do it on your own. You can't. There's no amount of moral showmanship. There's no right social connections. There's no, like, streak of avoiding one sin that can make you acceptable before a holy God. Sin is still in you. But Christ has come to eliminate that. You need to understand that. So much of our souls are bent on thinking that we earn our way to God. The whole message of Christianity that we want you to believe, that we sing about, is to understand that what needs to be done has been done, and you receive that by faith. So to the Christians in the room that are already in Christ, you should be celebrating and being renewed in your awe of God's grace. 
We don't become, you weren't a Christian. You were not a Christian this evening because you thought about it and made the right choice. On our own, we love sin. On our own, we reject God. In his grace, he opens our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. And if you're not in Christ, you should feel the weight of being separated from this holy God. His justice means that you should never get in with him. But he's made a way. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is the point of Christianity right here. Christ appeared in human history as the true and better high priest. He brought the good things that have come in the new covenant. Now remember, we're in an overlap of age still, right? He has come and has given the death blow to sin and evil and has forgiven you, but we still eagerly wait the day when he returns to finish the job completely. Your salvation is secure. Your sanctification is not yet complete. Christ has brought the good things in his death and resurrection, but he will bring them to full when he returns. The greater and more perfect tent of God's very presence in heaven. Jesus entered once for all. Man, don't miss that. One time finished by his own blood to secure our redemption, our freedom from sin's power. I love the way I've heard this said before that the gospel, um, what it does, it frees you now from sin's penalty. If you're in Christ, you are not any more savable than anybody who isn't in Christ. But if you've received that by faith, you have been set free from sin's penalty. Justice poured out on Jesus. All you get is the good of the new covenant because of Christ. But in the present, you've been given power to say no to sin. You're freed from sin's penalty, but even now you are able to fight against sin's power that still remains in you. But one day, sin's presence will be eliminated. Man, there's going to be a time when it's actually the last time you ever struggle with that sin. It'll be over. You won't be able to sin. You, you'll be made new. And you'll celebrate what Jesus did in this more perfect tent with all your brothers and sisters for the rest of eternity in perfect joy. No more sin. It's an eternal redemption. Verse 13 adds more to this. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, so it's kind of a contrast here, 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So these verses continue the logic. If the old covenant system would sanctify in a, ritual, um, a ritualistic way, remember, to point to and prepare for Christ, then what we see in this verse is the more thinking that the old covenant was good, but the new covenant is better. So how much more? If the old covenant did that, then how much more will the blood of Christ, the perfect without blemish sacrifice, who came to earth in this broken place and never sinned, how much more will you be purified 
And so you need to stop and realize this. There's gospel realities here that Christ purchased for you. And one of them you'll see right in the text. Not making this up. Look at the end of 14. Listen, you can have a purified conscience. This goes both ways. For if you're not a Christian, you need to hear this. There's a way to have a purified conscience. But for some of you, I know, I've walked with you. You're a believer, but your conscience is still tormented. You don't think like somebody who's been forgiven. You need to understand, it's a reality that's been purchased for you. You can have a clean conscience. And for those of you that know your own sinfulness, this should be cool water for your soul. You know that you are wrong or have done wrong, and you deserve punishment before a holy God, even for the smallest sins. And you know that justice has to be served. But the Hebrews gospel logic connects, please get this, the spotless blood of Christ and his one-time, once-and-for-all sacrifice with your current reality of having a clean, purified conscience. I get it. I go here. It's so easy for me to get caught up in sins I committed 10 years ago or patterns of sins that took me forever to overcome. And you let that seep into your soul now and you think there's no way God will accept me. There's no way God can use me. There's no way he wants anything to do with me. The devil tempts you. When he gets you, he accuses you. And you get trapped in this cycle of self-condemnation over and over again. And it's all predicated on you understanding that sin does deserve punishment. But the point of the gospel is that sin does deserve punishment. But if you're in Christ, your sin has been punished. It's done. You're right. The sins that you commit deserve death. But there is one who has died. Justice was served when Christ died. He took your punishment. Don't settle for our culture's version of cleaning your conscience. It goes something like, well, you just do you, and I'll be good with what I'm doing. That doesn't work. And if you're honest with yourself, you know it doesn't work. There is truth. Sin is the issue. And you actually can have a clean conscience. Listen to me. If you're in Christ... You are free to live as if you've never sinned. This doesn't mean there's not consequences for your sin. We understand this. But it means that there are no, the eternal consequences for your sin are over. My goodness. Can you imagine if you lived that way? You woke up understanding that? Culture tricks us into wanting to identify with our biggest struggles. And the gospel screams over it, once for all, clean conscience for my people. But there's others of you in here that don't have a sensitive conscience. Either you know your own evil and don't care, or you've convinced yourself that God doesn't care about morality. And I'm going into this and pleading with the Spirit and begging you to see and feel the weight of your guilt for sin. To see the beauty of the good news, you have to understand the bad. We're not interested in entertaining you tonight. This is real. It's reality. Sin is a thing. And this guilt is the good news. You don't leave here with being crushed by that. When you truly understand, you should let this guilt drive you to the high priest who bled for you. It's unbelievable. We want you to get that. But notice, there's more. Look at the gospel logic. This pure conscience has been purchased for you by Christ is connected to something 
It is connected to a pure conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's amazing. You get to actually live in freedom from your dead works. You are able to work with God without a guilty conscience. You don't have to second-guess yourself over and over again. You are free in Christ. You are saved to serve the living God. There's actual true life in him. Verse 15 keeps going. Therefore, the mediator, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So we're called, if you're a Christian in here, God called you by his spirit through his word. It's a reminder, a death has occurred. The old covenant was meant to show them that something had to be done. That's why if you read the old covenant, especially in Leviticus, you are appalled by how much blood is in there. It's a bloody mess. You have to ask why. It's designed to show you that because of sin, something must die. That's the punishment. But when you trust in Christ, you are redeemed from the transgressions that you have committed, and you are promised an eternal inheritance, all because Jesus has earned it for you. Verse 16, for there is a will, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. That's just explaining the human idea of wills and death to show you that the promised inheritance of salvation happened because a death really did happen. Look at 18 through 23. We're getting to the conclusion here. Therefore, so because of all that, that a death is needed for the inheritance to come, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people with blood, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, this verse is, I mean, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And, this is why, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. There must be blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. So this gruesome picture of all of this holy furniture being covered in blood should be screaming to them and to us that justice must be served, evil must be dealt with. Sin is the worst thing in the universe, and we do it every day on purpose. We should see the seriousness of this. But all of that meant to show that there was one who shed blood once for all. So, before we get to 24, it's where we're going to land tonight. I just want to review very quickly so we feel the gospel in here. The tabernacle showed that God would dwell with his people. The sacrifices showed that what had to be done for holiness to be upheld and sins dealt with, that had to happen so that God could be with an unholy people. We need to remember that we are separated from God in our sin. And we need to remember that nothing we did or do can get our consciences and our hearts right before God. So all that being said, look at 24, then we'll sing. For Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Listen, Christ has died, he has risen, and then he went to heaven to appear on our behalf. There was a human in heaven we have someone saying we can let them in, not because of our moral perfection, but because of his. 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. 
For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So there's that idea of ages again. The end of the present age has begun. It's not here yet because he hasn't returned, but sin has been dealt with. 27. This is where it gets real for you. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, you need to understand you are going to die, and after that you will be judged. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin because it's been dealt with, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We all must reckon with tonight. Our culture, I think, really does. It distracts us into entertainment to make us not think about these things that the Bible forces us to think about. You will die. That's the curse of sin. We sinned. Our father Adam sinned, so we die. And then we get judged. You're going to stand before the throne of God one day. And you will either be with him forever or you will be in hell forever. You're either going to pay for your sin or you're going to trust that your sin was paid for. Jesus is that perfect sacrifice, but he's more than that, and I want to show you. Band, you can make your way back up to lead us, but I want you to see this. All these shadows and types, all these things pointing us to something. Listen, he's the perfect sacrifice, but he is the ultimate lampstand as the light of the world for sinners. You can know what is good and right and true. You can be rescued from the darkness out there and the darkness in, in here, in your heart. He's the ultimate bread of presence as he came to fellowship and eat with us. Jesus is your full satisfaction. When he died, you see in the narrative, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. What is that saying? You can have access to God without being obliterated in his holiness. He's the ultimate Ark of the Covenant as he reigns on high. You can be ruled by a good king. You don't have to be enslaved to yourself or the world. He's the ultimate tabernacle who came to dwell with us and in us. You can be owned and loved by a holy God. And he is the ultimate sacrifice that made all of this possible. Verse 28. So Christ, having been offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. These things are true. One day Jesus really does come back and save us, and we get to eagerly wait for that day. Let's stand and sing.